on a windswept hill in an old English chapel, in the churchyard of the chapel, there's an old slate tombstone. On this tombstone, there's an epitaph written to the person who was buried there. And it reads as follows. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. How would you like to be known as, as the one thing that is remembered by you that when you die, the one thing remembered about you is that when you died, that was the last time that, that you, you were able to hold your tongue after that point. You no longer had trouble speaking. The interesting thing is, however, and I think we will see this in James, that all of us have trouble with our tongues in some way or another. All of us struggle with this. It's not something that only one of you or me or one of you, every single person struggles with their tongue, and I believe we'll see this from James. John Calvin, the, the famous reformer, said, there is nothing more slippery or loose than the tongue. If you'll bow your heads with me as, we're, as, we, as we dive into God's word this morning. Dear Father, as we are going into your word and as we are studying what you have to tell us this morning, I pray that you will speak to each mind, each person in this room, each person that's listening. I pray that the words that I speak may be used by your Holy Spirit to impress people with exactly what they need to hear in deepening their relationship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 3. We're going to be studying most of our time we're going to be spending in James 3 today. As we heard from those who have been memorizing it, this was the chapter that, that we were, were going over today. James chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse 1. James is talking to, from, from what we, we saw a couple weeks ago, James is talking to the Jews who are scattered abroad, to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the nations. He's specifically speaking to those who have become Christians. And in previously, in James chapter 2, the last part of James 2, he talks about how faith, the, the, the conundrum between faith and works. Some people say, well, I have faith. Other people say, well, I have works. Well, he, James makes the point that you can't have faith if your faith is not shown by the works that you do. You're not saved by what you do. You're not saved by your works, but your works demonstrate whether you have been saved yourself, whether you have had God's changing grace in your life. And he begins in James chapter 3. He, he focuses in on a specific work, a specific evidence, a specific thing that you can see, and in this case that you can hear. He says in verse 1, he says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that, you, that we shall receive a stricter judgment. It sounds like James was dealing with, uh, an, uh, the, the church as a whole, were dealing with people who all over the place were wanting to become teachers. If you become a teacher, anybody who is a teacher should know this and should realize, anybody who's been a teacher for a while will realize this, when you're a teacher, your students have placed you on a pedestal. 
You have the power to, to through, through what you teach them, through what you share with your students, you have the power to make a difference in their lives. You can either uh, help them positively or you can hurt them, something that will last for the rest of their life. They have a powerful influence on their life. But these people, he's saying, not everyone should, be, should, should try to become teachers. Not all of you should try to become, to lift yourself up to the position of, of saying that you're a teacher. And he says, why? In verse 2. For, this is why he's giving this command. For, we all stumble in many things. All of us have problems, right? We all, we all stumble into different sins and different problems. We, we struggle with different things. But he continues, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. He's saying if we all stumble in, in, in different ways, the thing that I struggle with may be different than the thing that you struggle with. The thing that you struggle with may be different than something that, that somebody else in the, in, in the congregation is struggling with. We all struggle in different ways. But the one thing that is the same is we all struggle with the tongue. It says, if you don't stumble in your word and what you say, you're perfect. The Greek for that word, another way to translate that is mature. You are a perfect man. You're a mature Christian, someone who has, who has allowed God to work in you and bring you to maturity, to perfection in Christ. He goes on to give several different examples. We, we see this problem this problem that we can have with a tongue that all of us have. He sets it up. It's a big problem. Everybody has this problem. You're going to be held accountable for what you say. But first, James knows that we have to recognize what this problem is. What is the problem? How can we recognize it? He goes on in the next couple of verses, verses 3 and 4, in, to say, to, to tame the tongue, you must recognize the power of the tongue. He gives the example of a, of a bit in a horse's mouth or the rudder on the back of a ship. Those two things, they're, they're really small in comparison with either the, the animal or the ship, but they have the ability, no matter, for example, in the ship, if a wind is blowing against the ship and the rudder is turning one direction, the ship will go with that direction. It has control. A very small piece sticking out of the back of the ship. In the same way, the tongue, even though it is an inordinately small part of your body, or it is a small part of your body, it has an inordinate influence that it, can have, that, that it can have on the people around you and on yourself. It's disproportionate to the size. It's not focusing on the, on the control aspect of it, but it can control through the influence. The tongue can't tell you to go to walk this way. The tongue can't tell you to walk to the left. The tongue can't tell you to stop, but it has the influence to control your life and others as well. It's incredible power. Then in the next couple of verses, he goes over the same thing, giving a different aspect of it, that to tame the tongue, you must recognize, first of all, that human power has, cannot do anything to stop it. Human power can't control it. it. It's dangerous. It's out of control. He gives the example of fire. How small, a, 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 how big a, a big a forest can be lit on fire by a small spark. How many of you remember the, the infamous Camp Fire from California at the end of last year? It was called the Camp Fire. It was the deadliest and the most destructive, the most destructive uh, fire in California history to date. 
This fire was started from a small spark from a failure in a power line. The power line had dropped down. It hadn't, it, the, the hook that was supposed to hold it onto the power, onto the pole had dropped down, and it caused a spark which lit the grass on fire around that power line. They knew about that fire. They didn't think it was going to be a big deal. They, it wasn't a huge fire. And they were, it was really early in the morning, so nobody was there able to take care of it. They were like, we'll, we'll get to it. When it gets bright enough, we'll, we'll go out there and we'll put it out. It's not going to be a problem. Well, as we see now, it was, as you can say, a perfect storm. Within six hours, that little spark that they thought was no big deal, it's just a small fire, that little spark had burned through two entire towns, Concow and Paradise in California. 95% of the buildings were destroyed, and 57 people had died in six hours from a small spark. 17 days later, it was finally contained. It was still burning, but it was finally contained, and it burned an area larger than the size of Chicago, the whole city of Chicago, 83 people dead and 19,000 buildings destroyed. From a small spark, James is saying here, the small spark has, has the power to, to destroy things. It has the power to, to tear things apart, to, to make things, to, to burn them down, to destroy lives. In the same way, it says, the tongue, in verse 6, James 3, verse 6, it says, the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, sets on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire by hell. There's three things here. We're going to break them down quickly here. The tongue is set that it defi- among the members, that it, first of all, it defiles our whole body. What does it mean to become defiled? You become dirty. You become, you become polluted. It has the ability to pollute, to defile your entire body, your entire existence, your entire life. The tongue. It also, along the line of fire, we'll be coming back to defiling a little bit later, just in brief, but along the lines of fire, it says it sets on course, on fire, the course of nature. Course, the course of nature, what exactly does that mean? People who are studying through the, the, the scholars and the translators don't really know what that phrase means. Literally translated, it means the wheel of life or the wheel of birth, the wheel of existence. Some of your Bibles will have that in, its no, in the notes uh, in the middle there. They don't really know what it means, but imagine with me, you, you look at all the different, the different examples that James gives from nature, and he's talking about that it sets on fire the entire course of your life, the entire wheel of existence. You remember the old wagon wheels, like what the pioneers traveled out west with? They're old wooden wheels. They have a hub in the middle, and out from that hub goes the spokes, the wooden spokes. What happens if the hub that goes onto the axle of the of the wagon, what happens if the hub catches on fire? That fire will spread through the spokes until the entire wheel is on fire. I believe this is what, what James is saying here. It has the ability, the tongue has the ability. It may start, it may be a small part of your body. It may just be a little word. It may just be a little story, a little, a little bit of gossip. But it has the ability to spread throughout your entire life until it is completely consumed, because it is completely ruined. And it says next that it is set on fire by hell. It's pretty strong language. The tongue is set on fire by hell? 
What is he talking about here? Is he talking about some, some subterranean place where, where the wicked are burning? And the, is that what he's talking about? The hell where the wicked are burning eternally? We know from the scriptures that hell is, where, where hell is referring to is, in, in most places in the scripture, hell is referring to the end of time when Jesus comes back, when all wickedness, everything Satan has brought on this earth, all sin, everything impure will be destroyed. The lake of fire at the end of time. This word for hell is really interesting. It's the word Gehenna. And Gehenna, the the reason why it's connected with hell is Gehenna is Hebrew for the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom is an actual place. This place was outside of Jerusalem. It was a place, first of all, where some, you can read about this in Jeremiah, I believe, where the Israelites, they had backslidden from God. They sacrificed their children to Molech child sacrifices. Horrible, horrible sins. The other place that it was really well known for is the Valley of Hinnom is the place where all the trash from Jerusalem was thrown. It was a garbage dump. And that place would be burning. They would light it on fire every now and then. It would be burning to, to burn up all the trash and the, the junk, that, that the, the, the impure things from the city that could no longer be used. That was where it was thrown. In other words, Gehenna is the place where all wickedness is. Gehenna is being used to talk about the, where hell at the end of time, when all wickedness will be thrown into this place and be destroyed. The tongue is set on fire by wickedness itself, by Satan, the source of where all of this comes from. Set on fire by hell. He gives four different... Um, Four different illustrations, you could say, of how we can't tame the tongue, how it's out of control, how it's dangerous. First of all, it's what we talked about, it's fire. Another thing it talks about is defiling the whole body. Another word for that, some of your translations will say they stains the whole body. It's, it has the ability to stain and to, to defile. Another one you can read in verse 7, it talks about how wild animals, wild animals can be tamed. We, we've been able to, to tame any kind of wild animal. Many of us have seen, or at least seen videos, if we haven't been able to go there, to SeaWorld or different circuses where we see lions, we see tigers, we see um, orca whales, we see things that have animals that, have, that are normally wild creatures that have been tamed. But James says, we've been able to tame all of that. Verse 8, no man can tame the tongue. We can tame even the most dangerous creature, but we can't do anything about the tongue. In verse 8, the next part there, the next part of verse 8, it also tells what the tongue is. It is a deadly poison. James uses all of these things to talk about the tongue. It's a fire that can consume, that that can burn things up, that can destroy. It's something that can stain, that can defile the entire body. It's something that you can't tame yourself. And it is a deadly poison. When he starts out saying that we all have this problem, isn't this kind of a depressing? We have this problem and it's so bad as compared to these, these terrible things that can kill, that can destroy. He continues on. Not only must we recognize in order to understand, in order to tame the tongue, 
We must first recognize the power of the tongue, and second, we must recognize that we can do nothing to tame it ourselves, that it's out of control, that it's uncontrollable, and that it's dangerous. And third, to tame the tongue, we must recognize how unnatural tongue trouble is for a Christian. I'll explain this in a little bit. How unnatural tongue trouble is for a Christian. Let's read in verses 9 to 12. James 3, verses 9 to 12. Talking about the tongue, he just finished up saying that the tongue is a deadly, it's full of deadly poison. (coughs) Excuse me. He says in verse 9, With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things are ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. In order to tame the tongue, you must recognize how unnatural the tongue trouble is for a Christian. He gives the examples from nature. Bitter water and salt water can't come out of the same spring. If you, have a, if you have a spring that has bitter water, the source of that spring is going to be bitter. You can't have a bitter spring and the water that comes out of it be fresh. It's just impossible in nature. He says you can't have a fig tree bear olives. You can't have a grapevine bear figs. All in nature, what you have, what the, the source, that it, whatever is coming out of it, the source of what is growing will be what comes out of it or what grows out of that tree. In nature, it's impossible to have something different come out than what is inside. This is what James is saying. How can, he says, with, our, with it, with the tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men. How can we be Christians? Claim to worship God, and in one word, say something hurtful and praise God in one, in one word and a minute later turn around and say something hurtful to a family member or to a friend. We've all experienced it, I believe. We come to church. Maybe you got impatient with a family member. Maybe you got impatient with your kids or your wife or your husband. You got a little angry with them and maybe you said something out of turn. You walk through these church doors Suddenly, everything changes. A switch goes off, and you're suddenly the perfect person. You're a Christian. You're a perfect Christian. Everyone sees you as a perfect Christian. James says, "How that my brethren, these things ought not to be so. If you're a Christian, how can you have bad things coming out of your mouth? Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking to them, and he was explaining how False prophets come like wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like the sheep. They look exactly like the the flock of sheep. But they're wolves that have put on sheep's clothing that look like sheep, but they're there to destroy, to hurt the sheep. Each one of us, it's a danger, Jesus was saying, within the church. It's a danger because how do you know which ones are wolves and which ones are sheep? And he says specifically at the end of that, he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. You have a good tree, it's going to bear good fruit. If you have a bad tree, it's going to bear bad fruit. You can't have a good tree bearing bad fruit or the other way around. 
all of us would be horrified and are horrified when we see stories of a child molester. See stories of someone who was just, who killed, like for example in New, New Zealand where they, they, they killed all of those people. How can somebody do that? That's a horrible sin. How could you murder that many people? We have a big problem with that, but how many of us, we might not admit it, but how many of us are okay with a little half-truth here and there, a little white lie, it's not a lie, it's just, it's mostly true. Maybe we're okay with, with a little gossip. It, it's, it's not really going to hurt the person, but it's not something that really needs to be shared. How many of us are okay with those things? Or maybe it's, it's a little bit of a, a hurtful sarcasm. There's truth to it, but it's said in a way that, that, that stings. How many of us are okay with those things? James says, these things ought not to be so. In transition here, James asks a question. James 3, verse 3. Who is wise and understanding among you, he asks. Remember, he began talking with, he began this epistle, writing to them, to the, to the Jews, to the Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians. He began writing to them with that everyone should not try to become teachers. He's asking this question. Who is wise and understanding among you? The word understanding is the Greek word epistemon. And epistemon is specifically used to talk about an expert, someone who is learned, someone who is skilled in what he does. How many of you, he says, he asks this question, how many of you claim to be wise, claim to be an expert in the things of God, claim to be able to be an expert in God's word, claim to be a teacher, an expert, He says, let him show, the next part of verse 13, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Do you claim to be wise and understanding? Do you claim to be an expert? He's saying you're not an expert just because of your claim. You're not an expert just because of what you think is wisdom. You're an expert the fact that you're an expert will be shown by your good conduct in works done in the meekness of wisdom. What's another word for meekness? Humility. Being humble. The wisdom of humility. Not lifting yourself up, not striving to become the highest place, not striving to, to, get, to get a higher place, of, as a higher role of respect. A humility of wisdom. Evidence of that is by what you do, or in the context of this, by what you say. We see in James 2, uh, the, the end of James 2, that works, as we talked earlier, works don't save you. Your faith saves you, but the fact that you have faith is demonstrated by what you do, by what you say, by what comes out of your mouth. You see the problem here, thinking again of the fruit by their fruit, you'll recognize them. If you look in verse, um, James 2, verse 17 and 18, he says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. See, what he's trying to say here is our real condition of our heart 
The real condition of what is inside, the real condition of our heart is shown in a big way by what comes out of our mouth. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 12, keep your finger in James. We're going to be coming right back to it. But turn to Matthew 12, verse 35. Matthew 12, verse 35. He's talking again. He's talking to the Pharisees, talking about this, the, how making the tree, the good tree bearing good fruit and the bad tree bearing bad fruit and so on. <coughs> he says in verse 35, Matthew 12, 35, a good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings forth what? Good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We know throughout Scripture that we aren't saved by what we do. We're saved through the blood of Jesus, right? Amen? We're not saved through what we do, but he's saying here that by your words you will be justified. By your words you will show whether you have been saved. Whether you, are, whether you are a follower, whether you have a good treasure in your heart, whether you've allowed God to make your heart new, to put that good treasure in your heart. Turn back with me to James 3. He continues on in verse, verse 14. He says, let him, let, let him show whoever you claims to be wise, whoever you claims to, to have to be an expert, let him show by his works that he is that he has humble wisdom. He goes on in verse 14 to 16, but if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, other versions may translate it bitter jealousy. It's the same thing. It's a jealousy wishing that you had a position of somebody else, wishing that you had a place that somebody else has been given. And self-seeking, lifting up yourself. Self-seeking is, is like, like a laborer for hire. You're, you're not just doing something because you want to do it, because it's good. You're doing it because you're getting kickback from it. You're getting paid for it in some way. It might not be money. It might not be something. What if, what if we are choosing to have a church office in this church because we want to, to, to look better to those of us around, to those around us? This is what he's talking about here self-seeking, choosing a higher position to lift yourself up. In verse 15, this wisdom, this wisdom that makes you lift yourself up, that, that, that promotes self-seeking and bitter jealousy, this wisdom does not descend from above. You know what it says in James chapter 1? That every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. This wisdom does not come down from the Father of lights. It's not good and perfect wisdom but is earthly, sensual, demonic. I think all of us here can understand what earthly means, right? And demonic, that makes sense. They're evil. Sensual, however, has, has taken on a little bit of a different meaning in today's culture, in today's society. If I say that something is really sensual, I'm talking about the, the sexual attraction, the sexual, the sexual part of whatever it is, Right? That's what we interpret, something is sensual. It's, it's attract, sexually attractive, whatever. But this word sensual, that's translated as sensual, 
It, it, what it's talking about is not so much the sexual side of it, it's talking about the unconverted person. In other places in Scripture, in Romans, it talks about the carnal man. This is what it's talking about. It's a person that has not been changed by the Holy Spirit. Their heart is unconverted. In Jude 9, we see this, this comparison really clearly. He's 19, he says, These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the Spirit. Saying to be sensual is to not have the Spirit in your life, to not be changed. And James is saying here that this wisdom, if you have bitter envy and jealousy in your heart, this wisdom comes from an unconverted heart. It comes from a demonic source. It comes from Satan. It comes from an earthly source. It doesn't come from heaven. It doesn't come from God. It comes from an unconverted heart. It continues, for where envy and self-seeking exist, jealousy and self-seeking, confusion and every evil thing are there. We have a pretty dark picture, don't we? James sets us up. We have this horrible problem. This tongue trouble, all of us have. It has the ability to destroy us. It has the ability to destroy those around us. If he ended there, we would be without hope. How do we get out of this mess? He's thrown us into this hole of, we're, we're all in this hole. We're, we're all here. We're all in a hopeless condition. We're all in this place. If we have a problem with our tongue, we have something in our life that is unconverted, something that's from Satan. Let's go to verse 17. James continues and says, but the wisdom that comes from above, remember the wisdom that comes down from the Father of lights? The wisdom that comes down from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. James is going through these things. He's saying that the wisdom that comes down from above is first of all pure. He's not talking about a numerical like this is first and this is second and this is third and this is fourth. In this, in this, what he's using here is saying that it is the core quality. It's the most important part of this wisdom that comes down from above. It is, it is pure. First of all, it is pure. Another interesting thing that you'll notice is the things that he lists after pure are fruits, are things that we can see. You're peaceable, you're gentle, willing to yield, submissive, full of mercy, good fruits, no partiality without hypocrisy. These are all problems that the church that James is writing to were facing. We see it in, in throughout. If you, if you look, we're not going to spend a lot of time going through all of it, but if you look through each of these, for example, the, the without partiality, he puts a big section in James chapter 1 on the problem of the church giving, showing partiality to a rich man and, not, and putting him in a place of honor when the poor man who comes in at the same time is pushed into the back. They had a problem with that. If you go through each of these, these are problems that the church he was talking to had. He's saying the wisdom that comes from above is the solution to all of those problems. Do you have a problem? Do you have the tongue trouble? The tongue trouble is, is showing you what is inside of your heart. How do you fix that problem? 
He says the wisdom that comes from above fixes that problem. Now, something to realize, we're, we're coming, to a cl- coming to an end here really soon. But something that's interesting here, James shows us the trouble, shows us how bad it is, shows us where the trouble comes from. He shows us the source of that trouble, an unconverted heart from Satan, from, from others, other outside earthly things. He shows us the solution and the wisdom that comes from above, but he doesn't tell us how to get that wisdom. What good is it if we know the solution to the problem, but we can't, we don't know how to get it? We all have this problem. How do we get the solution? You have to remember that that in the scripture, in the Bible, the chapter and verse markers were not in the original Bible. There was no chapter and verse markers. When they wrote the Bible, it was just a constant, like a letter form. It was when you write a letter, you don't put chapter 1 on this page and the next page, and then you put chapter 2 in the next page. When you're writing a letter, you don't, you don't do that. The Bible writers didn't do that either. And oftentimes, when we're looking at, we, we're going by chapters and we see chapter 3, well, this is a complete thought pattern. Oftentimes, that is true. But oftentimes, in other cases, it really messes with you. Because that wasn't, Oftentimes, it will continue the flow in the next chapter that was intended to be a constant flow from what was talked about in the previous chapter. And that's the case here in chapter 4. He goes on. I'm just going to summarize. Elder Flickinger is going to talk about this in in more detail next week, next Sabbath. But to to get the solution to this problem and how to get it, we, we need to dig into this a little bit, very briefly. He goes through in the first five verses telling the Christian church that he was talking to, you have all of these problems. You have these problems yourself. Where do these wars and fights come from? <coughs> they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. Where do these, these, these fights come from? Where do these disagreements? They come from your own selfish desires that are rising up within you. Do you have a problem with somebody else? Are you angry with someone else? comes from the selfishness within you you might be right that's the crazy thing you might be right but if the reason why you were trying to to talk with this person is to make yourself look better than them and to prove your own innocence so to speak it comes from a selfish point of view he continues on you lust you don't have you murder and covet and cannot obtain you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Are you asking God for things? Are you praying for help in your life? James says to the people he's writing to, you ask what you don't receive because the reason why you're asking is to make yourself look better to those around you. And then in verse 4, he says, adulterers and adulteresses, if you have, if you claim to be a Christian, And what comes out of your mouth is very unchristlike. Your heart is not in the right place. James is saying here, you have committed adultery. He goes on in the verse, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If your friendship, if you have friendship with the world, if you're doing the things that are selfish, that are lifting yourself up, it's it's putting yourself as an enemy to God. It continues on. In verse five, however, 
And this is where it switches. Remember, before it got any better, he actually made it worse to show the Christians, this is where you are. You think that you don't need this, but this is where you are. You need this message. Verse 5. Do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? God created us to have a relationship with him. Amen? He created us to have a relationship with him. But if we choose to allow our, unconver- our hearts to remain unconverted, even parts of our hearts to remain unconverted, if we choose to turn our backs on giving ourselves 100% to God, he says here that the Spirit yearns jealously. We saw jealousy earlier on, Right? Remember the bitter jealousy? This is a different kind of jealousy. The old bitter jealousy is a jealousy wanting something that is not rightfully yours. But this jealousy is specifically a jealousy that is wanting something that is rightfully yours. God is saying here, I am yearning, deeply longing to have this relationship with you. You are mine. I've bought you with a price. I've died for you. I've given you my life so that you can have this experience. But why have you left me? Why have you committed adultery with the world? I want you to come back to me. And in verse 6, the most beautiful part of this, he says, but he gives more grace. That's the switch. That's the change. He's yearning for us to come back to him. How do we come back to him? As, he, as it said earlier, we can't control the tongue. There's no way that we can control the tongue ourselves. But he gives more grace. The tongue is powerful. It's, it can destroy. But he gives more grace. Do you feel that you can't control your tongue? He gives more grace. It tells how to experience that in very short, verses 7 to 10. I would really encourage you to study this for what we're going to be studying it more in in depth next week with Elder Flickinger, as I was saying. I would encourage you to study this this week of what this means to yourself, how you can make this real in your life. It says, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Remember, he's longing for you to come back to him. He's longing for you to, to throw aside all of the impurities in your life that is, that, that is making your heart stay unconverted and come back to him. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know how in Scripture, where, remember where Pilate washed his hands at the, at the crucifixion of Jesus? He was symbolizing that he was not guilty, that he was innocent of the blood of Jesus. Now, we know that isn't something that works, literally, but that's an illustration. We need to make ourselves so that we are innocent. How do we do that? We can't change ourselves, but it's accepting the innocence of Jesus' righteous character as our own. 
It said, cleanse your hearts and purify, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Purifying your hearts is throwing out those things into the trash heap, getting them out of your life. Everything that, that is corrupting your life, that is pulling you away from Christ, get rid of them. Purify your hearts. Lament, mourn, and weep, and so on. You don't become, dis- don't become depressed, but, but you need to take things seriously. And he says again, this is bookended on both sides. Remember he said earlier, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. At the end, he repeats it again. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. How many of you struggle with something in your life, particularly in this case, with your mouths, your trouble with your tongues. Serious problem. It can cause problems that can not only make you lost yourself. Remember what what it says in Revelation chapter 21, that nothing, I'm paraphrasing here, but nothing that defiles can enter into that city. The tongue from an unconverted heart can defile you so that you cannot enter the city. It's a serious matter. How many of you want this morning to humble yourselves before God? Say, God, I don't have anything good on myself. There's no reason for me to be trying to elevate myself at any higher because I'm not worth anything. Humble yourself before God. Submit to God. And I believe a key part of this is to draw near to God. That is the solution. How do you get this grace? Spend time seeking after God. It already said in there, he is seeking after you. He will draw near to you. He's yearning after your unconverted heart. I believe most, if not all of us in this room, say that we're Christians. I'm including myself in this. We say that we're Christians, and we rightfully think that we are. We're following Christ, following his word, spending time with him. But how often do we have trouble with what we say? James is saying, It's a very good identifier of what is inside of your heart. So as you draw near to God, as you seek after him, ask him to show you what it is in your life. You may have given everything to God, but what is it in your life that you haven't given yet? He'll show it to you. He'll show you how to come to him. And he will give you victory over the tongue trouble in your life. Tongue trouble comes from heart trouble. If you allow God to fix your heart, your tongue will be fixed as well. How many of you want to make this commitment before God that you will allow him, that you will come before him seeking for him to help you with the tongue trouble that you have in your life? Amen.
Dear Father, you have seen these hands raised. You have seen the people here who are longing, each of us here are longing for to have a deeper relationship with you. We've seen how James paints such a desperate picture of how we all struggle with this. I pray that you will bring us conversion. That instead of our tongues being lit with the fires from hell, from wickedness, that our tongues will be lit in the fire of the Holy Spirit. As they were the disciples that were on Pentecost, I pray that our tongues will be lit with the fire of the Holy Spirit, that we will speak as they did about your truth and about your gospel, and that we will be able to bring many people to you as a result. Please bring each one of us to a point of full conversion, point of full commitment to you as we submit to you in humility, as we draw near to you, as you have promised we pray that you would draw near to us and give us that grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.